Well, the LME is back in the news. I have a feeling it won't be the last time either. But let us see. This time it's over aluminum. They don't know what to do. They want to ban Russian aluminum. I mean, it seems a little brazen to me that Alcoa is leading the charge. Top U.S. producer Alcoa has implored the LME to ban supplies from Russia. There seems to be a little bit of a conflict of interest there. Like, is Alcoa going out there purely on moral grounds? I guess it doesn't say, right? I mean, again, if I had a, if there was an NGO or a lawmaker that said, look, we have to ban Russian aluminum on moral grounds, we cannot support Russia in any way financially, I understand that, you know. But for Alcoa to get out there and say, we need to ban our competitor, and are they going out like, it just seems a little brazen, doesn't it? Maybe you feel otherwise. Feel free to leave a comment. Again, I, I'm just sharing my thoughts out loud here. So anyways, they are all trying to figure out what to do because this isn't easy. And as we know, for those that listened to that Alcoa earnings call in the summer, which I recorded from Crete, I remember very clearly the view from that episode. Yeah, aluminum is a very strategic metal. It is very light and it is very durable. So, of course, it is perfect for aviation, transportation. So, again, like to me, this just has the sense of Europe banning oil or Europe banning Russian natural gas. Again, I understand the moral argument here, but it's kind of back to this idea, who's getting hurt here, right? Like when Europe bans Russian oil, which I think they're trying to do now, you know, just like when they didn't turn on Nord Stream 2, who really got hurt by that? It seems like natural gas prices are quite elevated and that there are other, you know, growing economies that Russia can sell their energy and metals to. Take India, for instance. And if that means they take a discount, they'll take a discount. But these areas are growing like crazy. It's the global south. So, I mean, from Russia's perspective, why not? You have growing markets. I mean, I would think. So it's just back to this Russian metal ban. I mean, are we doing this to make ourselves feel good is my question. Like, who is this hurting? Okay, and for Alcoa, of all people, again, like, I only have a line here from this Bloomberg article via mining.com. Top U.S. producer Alcoa has implored the LME to ban supplies from Russia. So it doesn't say what their motivation is, but there sure seems to be a conflict of interest there because I'm sure it would be pretty convenient. Meanwhile, meanwhile, we have a major inflation problem, core inflation, inflation without food and energy factored in. Core inflation is at a 40-year high. Now, if we start having a significantly smaller amount of aluminum on the market, is that going to help the cost of everything outside of food and energy at all? Like To me, it seems like, uh, again, it just reminds me of European energy policy. And I don't think it's controversial what I'm saying here. I mean, you listen to anybody who's an expert in energy on a podcast or YouTube, like anybody, it's like almost everybody, Europe is shooting itself in the foot. Anyways, these are just my reflections. Again, I don't claim to have any 
sort of monopoly on anything or want to tell anybody how to think. But I just go, we have a major inflation problem and we're going to start banning one of the most strategic metals out there. And what about military? And then, you know, it's kind of like the same logic of the strategic petroleum reserve. Like we're going to empty it, but somehow that's all going to be fine. So maybe I'm missing something. Help me out. Leave a comment. We love comments here. We really do. So anyways, we're going to get into those stories. And the nickel trader, that one's kind of amusing. The nickel trader that caused all the fuss in, I believe it was March. We're going to read it in the story here in the news section. He's back and he's wanting to put on some big trades. So so people, I guess the people don't want to take those trades. Um, yeah, so anyways... From bad to worse here. So it can't be easy to be the LME these days. Again, I think if you're an exchange, your ideal is to be out of the news. You just want to facilitate a good market, one would think. A liquid, healthy market. Anyways, with that, quick news item here on the Canadian Mining Symposium. We do have our speakers announced. Let me just bring this up. Just go to events.northernminer.com. Click on Canadian Mining Symposium, and there you can request your investor pass, and it features Sean Boyd, Executive Chair of Agnico Eagle Mines, Phil Baker, President and CEO of Hecla Mining, Ira Thomas, President and CEO and Director of Lucera Diamond, who I will be interviewing, and Nadine Miller, Vice President of Cybersecurity and Operational Technology from JDS Energy and Mining. That sounds like it'll also be fascinating. And those are your headliners and many more to come. So if you want to learn more about that, just go to events.northernminer.com and click on Request Your Investor Pass to do just that. So coming up this episode, we have an awesome interview that Northern Miner Editor-in-Chief Alicia Hyatt did with Chris Taylor, former president and CEO of Great Bear Resources. And it really is a how-to guide on exploration companies. Another one, I think we've done a couple of these, very useful uh, information here. I'd say more from the mindset perspective, but it's just chock full of information on how Chris Taylor and his team took Great Bear from really zero to hero and bought an asset for $200,000 that they later sold all those assets together for $2 billion. So... In some lands, we call that a 100x, so a lot of people got rich off of that. So you can hear the full story this episode in our feature content. Also coming up, we have Steve Stackew from Element 29 Resources. He is the president and CEO. Just go to e29copper.com to learn more, and he talks about his two copper properties in Peru, which is also fascinating. I ask him how it is to work out there and all about what's going on. A lot of people are excited about copper right now. So with that, if you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You find us on Twitter at Northern Miner. You can find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts. And wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to Steve Stackew, President and CEO of Element 29 Resources. For this w- And with that, let's turn to Steve Stackew, President and CEO of Element 29 Resources for this week's CEO Spotlight. Joining us today, I am very pleased to welcome for the first time to the Northern Miner podcast, at least while I'm working here, is Element 29 Resources President and CEO Steve Stackew. 
Steve, welcome to the program. Thank you, Adrian. So you are at Element 29 Resources. Tell our listeners about the company. Maybe they haven't heard of it or have just heard about it in passing. Could you help fill in the details on what's going on at the company? Certainly. Element 29 Resources, we're a fairly new company. We launched just over a year and a half ago via an IPO, and we're focused on Peru and specifically on copper projects in Peru. So we have you know, what we think are two very you know, high-quality porphyry copper projects in Peru, being Elida and Flor de Cobre. And the company is really focused on taking these projects from the drill stage and moving them up the ladder, as they say, de-risking them towards resource delineation. And just recently, we've successfully put out our initial mineral resource on one of the projects, Elida, and we aim to have a second mineral resource out before year end on our other main project, Florida Cobra. So a lot of exciting things in the pipeline. And uh, you know, we see that as a, as a great pathway for, uh, for Element 29, really to, to evolve from that uh, from the explorer, you know, drilling stage company to a potential resource developer. So how did you come across these properties? Good question. These projects were actually were, were found and secured by a company called Globetrotter Resources, and, and they're a private project incubator company, and, and we were created from that. So there's a lot of uh, common you know, uh, common management between the two. So some of the principals of Globetrotters saw the opportunity to take you know, a couple of what they saw as their, as their top-tier copper projects in Peru and put them into a vehicle to IPO, and that's how Element 29 came to be in uh, at the end of 2020. Fascinating. And so you are in Peru. Tell us about working in Peru. You know, sometimes people have raised questions, but traditionally it's one of the best places to work. And of course, a lot of the world's copper is in Chile and Peru. Tell us a little bit about Peru and just your experience working there and how you feel about it. Yeah, we've worked as a team, you know, cumulatively, we've worked in Peru for, you know, at least a decade, decade and a half now. We're very comfortable with the jurisdiction. And as you correctly identified, Peru is, is a top, you know, copper producing jurisdiction. It's number two in the world after Chile. So it's, it's a big producer. So it's a great place to be looking for copper. You know, it's very well uh, endowed in copper mineralization with deposits, you know, kind of, uh, you know, distributed you know, throughout the country. So there's lots of exploration potential within the country as well. So it is a great jurisdiction to be working in. Politically as a jurisdiction, we like it as well. People see a lot of, I guess, a lot of news about projects and, and you know, opposition to mining projects you know, throughout Latin America and South America. We find Peru is still a great jurisdiction on that front. You know, if you look at what's happening on the mining and, develop, and mineral development front in the country, mines are getting permitted, you know, and mines are getting built. Exploration projects are getting permitted, like we've done with both of ours. We've drilled and we're taking them to the resource stage. And, and as a jurisdiction, you know, it is one of the lowest cost. If you look at, you know, copper miners globally, it's slightly behind Chile, but it's, it is one of the lowest cost jurisdictions uh, in, in the world. You know, we like that. And if you look at, uh, you know, what, what's happening in the country, you see See a, a number of majors, majors like you know Anglo American at their big K of Echo copper mine, which is not far from our Florida Cobre project in the Southern Peru Copper Belt, and others. You know, over the last year, there's been several billion in investment to, to develop and build mines. And, and really, if that you know, if it wasn't a good jurisdiction, that money wouldn't be invested in the country. So I think that's a great endorsement of the country as a jurisdiction, and we're very happy to be operating there. So I think a lot of investors are pretty excited about copper right now. And so what do you think you have at these properties here? Like, what is the story on these properties? Yeah, no, for sure. Copper, yeah, we, we all know, you know, the copper macro thesis is certainly very bullish, you know, in terms of, you know, co forecast copper, you know, demand, you know, moving towards a green economy and supply. So we're, we're really at a point where it's, you know, we're, we're at, you know, historical low, all time lows in terms of copper inventory versus demand. And, 
And that looks like it's going to get even tighter over the next several years. So we think we're well positioned as a copper explorer developer. So what we're moving forward on is really to, is to delineate copper resources. We see an opportunity to build that uh, within Element 29 you know, ultimately moving towards a development pathway. You know, just recently, we've highlighted at our Elida copper deposit in, in West Central Peru, our inferred mineral resource. So this is our very first resource that we've put out there. And we've delineated, you know, about 322 million tons, grading 0.32% copper, 0.03% molybdenum, and 2.6 grams per ton silver. And that's, uh, that's at a 0.2 copper cutoff grade. And that equates to about, uh, just on the copper front, that's about 2.2 billion pounds of contained copper, or just over a million tons. That's a very significant uh, initial resource. And we see a great opportunity to grow that within the deposit. That's, that's only on one of five identified porphyries, which are the mineralizing systems where the copper mineralization is hosted, that we've identified on the property. And, and we've just recently started uh, a phase two drill program uh, on that as well. So we, we see great potential and, you know, you know, even within the zone one deposit, you know, that's not even fully drilled off yet. So we haven't, uh, we haven't defined the boundaries of that. So there's even room to grow that initial resource on zone one uh, on top of the other targets on the property. Okay, excellent. And probably a question you get pretty often is, is one project sort of, do you, do you see one as, you know, your flagship project and another as a secondary project? Can you speak to that? Yeah, no, that is a good question. And it does come up. People always, you know, want to know, where's your focus? And I kind of, we're, we're kind of blessed that we actually have what I would call two flagship projects between Alida, as I, you know, as I just discussed with, with our initial, you know, mineral resource there on, on that copper deposit with its growth potential, but also on our Florida Cobre project, which is down in the Southern Peru copper belt. We finished up a drill program there uh, earlier this year. Uh, and we're in the process of calculating our initial mineral resource estimate on the Candelaria copper zone there. So, you know, that's pretty exciting. So, you know, from we're really advancing what I think, you know, moving the company you know, up that ladder to, you know, to having two mineral resources out. So, you know, our goal is, is really to build, you know, copper resources. And, and I think we're well along that path right now. And then even on top of that, there's other targets on. Uh, as I mentioned on Elida, but also at Florida Cobre. So there's a whole pipeline I see of porphyry copper potential in, in both our projects moving forward. Okay, excellent. And so as far as the roadmap then, where are you uh, with these projects and where do you hope to be, say, in the next six months to two years? Yeah, I think as we move forward on, on Elida with, with our phase two drill program underway, certainly the goal there looks to, to build on that initial resource of, uh, of 322 million tons of 0.32% copper. And, you know, what's encouraging is even within that, we've identified much higher grade subset within that resource of very near surface, higher grade copper mineralization, about 34 million tons of 0.55% copper right at bedrock surface or near bedrock surface. So that's really encouraging. Because ultimately, as you, you know, if you, when you start to evaluate a development pathway for this, you know, having high grade near surface is certainly advantageous. It, you know, it does maximize, you know, your potential payback or IRR, you know, as, as you get into your prospective mining operations. Also at uh, Florida Cobre, you know, we've identified, you know, that historical mineral resource at Florida Cobre is about 57 million tons of, of 0.67% copper. And that's actually what, what they call a super gene or copper enrichment mineralization. And that's near surface. So it, 
provides a compelling development pathway for us going forward. And then there's a great big porphyry target there called Atravisado, which we're permitting currently uh, and anticipate to have that, you know, those permits in hand next year. So really, it's moving the projects, you know, de-risking the copper deposits that we, we are delineating on both of these and, and then exploring the discovery upside that we see on them. But ultimately, a, a development pathway for these, these are going to be, you know, these are big porphyry copper deposits. You know, if you see, you know, what it takes to to get them into production is is uh, you know billions of dollars of capital to build these mines. So as we move it up the chain, that's probably not a pathway that Element 29 is going to proceed. That's a lot of capital to raise. But certainly, we see our you know E29s. Uh, ability here is to unlock value in these and for shareholders and investors as we uh, as we add value to these deposits, ultimately, you know, painting a compelling picture for for hopefully a major to come in and start to look at these uh, with with an eye for development. Well, it sounds very exciting. So as we wrap up here, I guess, what is the takeaway that you'd like to leave investors with in regard to your company and your project? If you look at what we're doing and what we've accomplished, I think, you know, we've delivered on on key milestones, you know, and, and we still have some very significant catalysts forthcoming. You know, we're, we're obviously navigating very difficult uh, equity capital markets currently, but the opportunity, I think, to unlock that value for E29 is there because, you know, as you, you know, as you de-risk these projects, as you prove up the copper in the deposits, you know, certainly you should start to realize higher valuation, you know, through through the markets. And certainly that's our goal is to, to is to unlock that value. So we're we're moving and, and you know, we've been successful to date. And I think we're going to continue to be successful in uh, in showing what these projects have and, and showing, you know, a very significant copper resource on, on both these deposits. OK, excellent. So if people want to find you, I guess they can go online to E29copper.com. I assume you're on the Venture Exchange as well. We are, Adrian. We're uh, we're listed on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol ECU. We're also listed in the U.S. on the OTC uh, QB under the symbol EMTRF. So those are the two main listings we have uh, to watch for. Excellent. Well, Steve Stackew, Element 29 Resources President and CEO, thank you for joining us on this week's CEO Spotlight. My pleasure, and thank you, Adrian. And thank you once again to Element 29 for sponsoring this week's episode of the Northern Miner podcast, turning to the website, embattled London Metal Exchange is headed into yet another fight. This is Bloomberg News via mining.com. The London Metal Exchange has faced a firestorm of criticism this year, and it's about to get even worse. The 145-year-old bourse is already taking heat from regulators and being sued by hedge funds and proprietary traders over its handling of a massive short squeeze in nickel in March. Now it's lurching towards yet another clash, this time over whether to ban Russian supplies in a debate that is polarizing the metals world. A survey of traders in the aluminum market carried out by Bloomberg suggests that the sector is split. While many consumers are averse to taking Russian metal, some buyers of specialized Russian products can hardly escape using it. Top U.S. producer Alcoa Corp. has implored the LME to ban supplies from Russia, while its Russian counterpart United Co., Russell International has hinted it may sue if it does. The exchange formally opened a discussion earlier this month on how it should deal with Russian metal, and the debate is now coming to a head as the world's metal miners, traders, financiers, and manufacturers gather in London for the annual LME Week. And we have a quote from ING Metal strategist Ua Manthi, quote, Any move by the LME would have far-reaching implications for the metals markets. 
Without the ban, the LME risks losing its relevance as a benchmark for global metals trading. So without the ban. With the ban, global trade flows risk a disruption that could last for years to come. So if they don't ban it, they risk losing relevance as a benchmark for global metals trading. But with the ban, they could face a disruption. Interesting. I would think if you banned the metal that you would actually risk losing yourself as a standard because all of a sudden there would be two markets. There would be a bifurcated market. So I'm not sure I follow the logic there, but clearly Ua Manthi is a far more of an expert than I am, but I just wonder about that logic there. The LME is considering taking action because of concerns that large amounts of unwanted Russian metal could be dumped into its warehouses as a last resort, distorting the world's benchmark prices. So they're worried that there's going to be too much metal. Well, it seems like a great problem to have these days, isn't it? Distorting the world's benchmark prices. And wouldn't that distortion be temporary? I mean, it's not going to be permanent. And if you have a permanent lowering of aluminum, isn't that good? The LME proposals, which include a potential ban on new deliveries of Russian metal as soon as next month, have already sparked extreme volatility, with prices jumping by an intraday record as Bloomberg first reported on the LME's discussion paper last month. Adding to the powder keg trading conditions, the White House is also weighing potential measures that could restrict the flow of aluminum into the U.S. or even result in sanctions on Russell the largest supplier outside China. While market participants have until Friday to submit their responses to the LME, interviews with metal producers, traders, and consumers show that the subject is already dividing the market. Bloomberg polled a dozen traders in the global physical aluminum market, including several of the largest players in the business. The poll revealed that a significant proportion of buyers are unwilling to take Russian metal, not only in Europe, but also in the USA and Asia. What is a significant proportion? That is not a number. A significant proportion of buyers. But it also showed that there are also still many who are willing to buy, particularly if the price is right and financing is available. Well, I think numbers, if you're going to share poll data, I think numbers are useful here. The deteriorating economic outlook is also muddying the debate, as many manufacturers look to cut purchases of metals of all origins and as it solicits views across the market, the LME has indicated that it is particularly interested in the stance of consumers of metal. Some traders say that a large majority of their customers don't want Russian supplies in discussions about contracts for 2023. Mark Hansen, chief executive of trading house Concord Resources, said that about 90% of the customers for roughly 1 million tons of aluminum he sells are refusing to buy Russian metal. He cited the reasons include, quote, lack of financial institutional support for the Russell brand in commercial transactions, moral concerns over the Russia-Ukraine war, anticipation that the LME will delist Russian metals, and the likelihood that governmental sanctions on Russell from the USA, EU, and UK are imminent. So interesting. Turning to our other LME story, Brokers Bulk as Nickel Tycoon seeks to add to LME short position, Bloomberg News via mining.com. You gotta laugh. The metals tycoon at the center of this year's massive nickel squeeze has been seeking to add new short positions for the first time since the crisis, but is struggling to convince brokers to handle the trades. Zhang Guangda, Tingshan Holding Group Company, pared back its nickel short position 
over the summer to a relatively low level that has remained stable for months. Now, the world's largest producer of nickel and stainless steel is talking to brokers about starting to increase its position on the London Metal Exchange as a hedge for its own nickel output, according to people familiar with the matter. Tsingshan isn't looking to place a bet anywhere near as big as the one that rocked global metals markets in March, said the people who asked not to be identified discussing private information. Even so, brokers are wary of substantial positions for Tsingshan, and some have entirely stopped trading for the company. While Zhang and Tsingshang are seeking to move beyond the drama of this year's crisis, the LME and its nickel market remain deeply scarred. The 145-year-old exchange is facing pressure from regulators and lawsuits from hedge funds and traders over its actions during the squeeze, including the decision to cancel billions of dollars in transactions. It is a real mess, isn't it? You know, it's just a kind of fraying of the system, like we saw in England there in the bond market. Here we saw it in the LME, like, you know, a sign that things aren't quite as stable as normal, to state the obvious. Nickel trading volumes have yet to recover, and the market is still operating with shortened trading hours. And it says also just finally here, as the largest nickel producer, Tsingshan has been for years been one of the biggest players in the LME market, placing trades as a hedge against its swings in the value of the physical metal it produces, as well as to bet on future price moves. Interesting. So you can read the whole thing on mining.com. Continuing on, President Joe Biden hands out first EV battery metals funding to Albemarle, Piedmont, and Tallinn, among others. This is by Colin McClellan of the Northern Miner. Albemarle, Piedmont Lithium, and Talon Metals are among the companies marked for $2.8 billion in Biden administration funding announced this week to help the critical minerals industry meet electric vehicles and other green energy targets. The White House selected 20 U.S. manufacturers and processors across 12 states for some of the first green metals funding from the $135 billion pool initially approved almost a year ago in the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act. I guess this is part of the problem. I mean, I'm one of these people who is saying, you know, the government should help move this process along because we're competing against, you know, China, which is also a subsidized market. So, you know, maybe there should be some government intervention. But I guess part of the problem with that is they start to pick winners and losers, right? Because all of a sudden, if you're one of these companies, you're kind of set, I imagine, The U.S. is among countries in the West that want to lessen dependency on China, Russia, and other regimes like the Democratic Republic of Congo that control global supplies and key minerals or mineral processing facilities needed for transitions to sustainable energy and widespread modern tech gadgets. And we have a quote here from Albemarle Chief Executive Officer Kent Masters, who said in a press release, and I quote, Expanding our U.S. footprint also increases the speed of lithium processing and reduces greenhouse gas emissions from long-distance transportation of raw minerals. We hope this project spurs additional investment by others in the domestic EV battery supply chain, such as cathode manufacturers, battery makers, and auto manufacturers. And Piedmont Chief Operating Officer Patrick Brindle said, quote, this funding will enable us to accelerate detailed engineering and place orders for long-lead items. And Talon Metals Nickel Unit in North Dakota is to receive $114 million to build a processing plant for mineral mined in Minnesota, the company said. And Piedmont has a contract to supply Tesla 
but has yet to secure permits for a $840 million open pit mine in North Carolina. That's kind of hilarious that they already have the money coming in. So they're going to use their $141.7 million from the program to build a $600 million processing plant in Tennessee for material mined in Quebec at its 25% owned North American lithium project and Ghana. It aims to produce 30,000 tons a year, doubling current U.S. output of lithium hydroxide. And we have a quote from the White House, just to tie the bow here. The lack of mining, processing, and recycling capacity in the U.S. could hinder electric vehicle development and adoption. The projects will have positive impact on their own and also catalyze a whole U.S. industry in the critical phases of the battery supply chain. Well, at least they seem to understand that. So grounds for optimism here. And a couple of more here. Nouveau Monde Graphite Lands Framework Deal with Mitsui and Panasonic. It's by Jackson Chen. Nouveau Monde Graphite has entered into a framework agreement with Mitsui and Company and Panasonic Energy, establishing the terms of a commercial relationship that enables the next development steps of the company's ore-to-battery market integrated graphite project in Quebec. Under the Strategic Partnership Framework, there is a non-binding memorandum of understanding on an offtake by Panasonic of a significant portion of Nouveau Monde's green active anode material out of the company's integrated phase two commercial production facilities over a multi-year term. Both Nouveau Monde and Panasonic Energy intend to work together in the upcoming months to establish a definitive offtake agreement. And we have a quote from Kazuo Tadanobu, president and CEO of Panasonic Energy, who said, quote, we are very pleased to be participating in this strategic partnership with Nouveau Monde Graphite, which will allow us to explore the possibility of establishing an environmentally friendly supply chain in North America through a completely new integrated anode production in Canada. Fascinating. And Nouveau Monde President and CEO Eric Desaulniers said, quote, I am delighted to embark on this transformative partnership with experienced and industry-leading partners Mitsui and Panasonic Energy. It is set to provide Nouveau Monde with a solid commercial foundation for deploying our phase two commercial operations. You can read the whole story on northernminer.com. And a couple of headlines here. Barrick to expand East African footprint following positive results at North Mara, Bulyanhulu Mines. It's by a staff writer. And just quickly, a couple of paragraphs here. Barrick Gold's president and CEO, Mark Bristow, announced on Saturday that the company plans to expand its East African footprint using the North Mara and Bulyanhulu gold mines in Tanzania is a foundation for this endeavor. So interesting. So West Africa has gotten pretty hot geopolitically. So East Africa is where Barrick and Mark Bristow is heading. Back in September 2019, Barrick inherited what Bristow called these moribund mines when it reacquired Acacia Mining. After some rebuilding work, the mines breathed new life and are now set to achieve a combined production in excess of 500,000 ounces for the second year running, thus becoming elite tier one assets. That is quite the turnaround. And Bristow has a quote here. In addition to the brownfield exploration designed to maintain the positive trend on resource expansion and conversion at the two mines, we are also looking further afield. A better understanding of the region's geological architecture will improve our ability to discover new world-class development opportunities in our areas of interest. Fascinating. So Barrick develops in East Africa. So those are your news stories. Now, let's take a look at metal prices. 
And turning to metal prices, let's take a quick look at the 10-year bond. Kind of a dramatic week. The U.S. 10-year bond is now at 4.169. So that was up almost 0.19% on the week. And I believe it was a little bit higher too. So everybody was worrying about UK bond yields getting above 4%. But here, U.S. 10-year bonds above 4%. I believe the gilts, let's take a quick look here. British bonds are below, they're at 3.629, so they have come down substantially. I guess people like the new prime minister, he seems like a steady hand here. He seems to have a financial background, so I think the markets are liking that. Sunak pledges to fix mistakes as he becomes UKPM, the current headline here. On to metal prices. We like to thank mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on October 25th, Gold is trading at $1,641.63 per ounce. That is $12 lower than last week. Silver is trading 14 cents higher at $18.88 per ounce. Platinum is trading $7 lower at $914.57 per ounce. And palladium is trading $52 lower at $1,965.90 per ounce. Turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading $0.07 cents lower at $3.42 per pound. Aluminum is trading $0.07 cents lower at $0.98 cents per pound. Lead is trading $0.05 cents lower at $0.88 cents per pound. Nickel is trading $0.17 cents lower at $9.77 per pound. Tin is trading at $8.36 per pound. That is $0.70 cents lower than last week. Cobalt is unchanged at $23.26 per pound. And zinc is two cents higher at $1.36 per pound. What do we see? Basically a mixed bag with silver and zinc being the outliers higher and everything else lower. Nothing too dramatic. Good news for inflation, you could say. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have Chris Taylor, advisor to the Discovery Group and former CEO, President, and Director of Great Bear Resources, and he gives a fireside chat conversation with Northern Miner Editor-in-Chief Alicia Hyatt on the massive Dixie discovery, which was taken out by Kinross Gold for $1.8 billion, and then they finally sold right before this interview, as you're going to learn, the royalty on the project for another $200 million. So, they are doing very well, and Chris Taylor gives a very genuine and interesting and informative interview on the mindsets, really, that are required to soldier through a bear market to take a project from the initial stages to completion. It is a very interesting interview, expertly given by Editor-in-Chief Alicia Hyatt. I hope you enjoy it, and I will see you on the other side. Chris Taylor is a structural and economic geologist and mining entrepreneur. Chris has over 20 years of experience in the mining sector with both producers and exploration companies. He was most recently president and CEO of Great Bear Resources, leading the company through a major gold discovery and into a $1.8 billion acquisition by Kinross Gold in February this year. Currently, Chris is chairman of Kodiak Copper and advisor to K2 Gold, both with the Discovery Group of Companies 
last year, he was named as the Northern Miners Person of the Year. Hi, Chris. It's great to see you. And thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks very much for inviting me. Well, of course, I mean, as Anthony mentioned, this was an amazing story that we've all been covering for for the last several years. Really happy to be speaking to you today. Congratulations on your incredible success. It's been about seven months since the deal with Ken Ross closed. So have you had time to catch your breath? Well, we uh, recently completed the sale of the royalty uh, that we spun out of Great Bear as well. So that's just a couple of weeks old now, uh, sold to Royal Gold for uh, $200 million. So we have been busy uh, behind the scenes or getting that off. But I have to say with the Great Bear sale and now the Great Bear royalty sale, that is it for Great Bear. So um, <laughs> it's been a great ride with Great Bear. But uh, as they say, it's curtains for that story. So nice to talk about it again and nice to talk to you. Well, wonderful. And so that uh, acquisition of the royalty company brings the total value up to $2 billion. So That's a nice round number. <laughs> And funny enough, a bit of a goal in the back of our minds based on the sort of value and the system that we were seeing. So uh, a very nice present uh, to deliver to our shareholder partners uh, with those companies. So the story of Great Bear Resources is the type of story that inspires people in the mining industry and draws investors into the industry as well. It's this very compelling, classic, but rare story of a big discovery where you bet it all on this project. You financed it through the early days, through some very tough times because you believed in it. And you came out with this incredible discovery and created a lot of value for your shareholders. But it took a lot of sacrifice to get there. So I want to just go back to the start of the story. You acquired the Dixie Project in Red Lake in 2015. What was it that initially got you interested in the project? Quite simply, that was Bob Singh. So my partner in Great Bear right from the early days was Bob Singh, another PGO. Now, Bob uh, had worked on this project or had been working in the Red Lake area and seeing Drill Corps from this project back, you know, this is going on 10 years ago now. And uh, Bob and I uh, were effectively looking along with the Great Bear board for a project that we could ultimately now you have that decision that you have to make. If we make a major discovery somewhere, can we ultimately develop a project? Does it have the infrastructure? Does it have the mining support in the community? So this was one of those rare opportunities where we had a suite of over 150 drill holes. Bob had identified the prospectivity on the system. And now it was a matter of um, starting this sort of puzzle solving process of uh, making the discovery on the project, the, the real discovery after the uh, several operators had been there over the years and done drill but we had to basically figure out the riddle and solve it. And uh, that was the process that we went through over our time there since 2015. So what did you see that, that the previous operators had missed? Like, did they know that there was a riddle there? You know, the, this is one of the things that's interesting. It's one of the most interesting things about being a geologist is you really, when you have a project that's rich in data, you have the ability to go through and filter through that data and evaluate it with fresh eyes. And what you'll see if there's different generations of operators on a project is they'll often have very different interpretations for the rocks. Maybe the rocks don't look like what you expect visually. So maybe you have to do geochemistry to unravel that puzzle, petrographic work, other things. So we had years, uh, decades of work on this property to look at. And uh, basically our interpretation was very different from some of the previous operators. And ultimately, there was a mentality in the Red Lake area that all the mineralization had to be in one suite of rocks. But in the end, we had a different suite of rocks in this property, but very similar mineralization. And then mineralization, a very strong gold mineralization, similar to deposits in other areas of Ontario. So effectively, we had enough data when we got involved to make 
a reevaluation. And then we have to get out of that box. I mean, people get into a camp, then their thinking is all inside of a box, what we should find in this area. And of course, what we found, as people know now at the Dixie Project, or as Kinross calls it, the Great Bear Project, uh, was something that was completely new to that district. So with something that's completely new, with a, a storied camp, such as Red Lake, you must have faced some skepticism and, and trouble convincing people, and maybe you even doubted yourselves at the time. Self-doubt wasn't too much of a part of it, but certainly we did get a lot of skepticism from uh, other parties who, and I'll say the air quotes, know the Red Lake camp. Uh, so if you know the Red Lake camp, you're not going to be looking for a major gold system in the area that we were, and you weren't going to be looking for it in the felsic rocks that we were finding all this gold in. So initially, uh, there was a lot of skepticism in the market, and that's really because if you think about mining projects, they're a bit like hockey players or baseball players or, uh, you know, other, other people that you can build a stats sheet on. So you'll have, you know, uh, how much drilling, who's operated in the past, what the performance of that project has really been. And when people thought about what this project had provided, it had some splashy gold numbers, but it had some misinterpretation. It had some work that hadn't been done quite properly, quite frankly. And that led to a perception of a lack of continuity in the gold zones and a lack of potential for the big suites of rocks in the project. So it was really uh, up against that sort of, um, you know, skepticism, which is healthy skepticism in our industry. We get this all the time. And that meant that we had to take some very, um, you know, precise and consistent steps in disclosing how, you know, the results that we came up with and uh, how we disclose that information and ultimately leaning on a very transparent disclosure process that built up confidence in the market over time. Tell me a little bit more about that, that approach, because I, I believe that was pretty new or unusual. Yeah, Alicia, it's, it's, it's right. I mean, uh, we ended up publishing uh, every assay interval from our drill holes. Like we had tables that were uh, on our website that were all the highlighted results as you'd usually get. But as the project developed and we, we made the LP fault zone discovery, we ended up coming up with this strategy uh, to address, you know, people's concerns about continuity, size, other factors. So we, we came up with a series of news releases through 2021, and these were really showing every single assay interval. Like if you had 10 meters of 10 grams per gold, we would show you how every assay interval from that, that reported interval had come back from the lab. And we did that at different scales. We had had a zoomed out scale, a tighter scale, and a really tight scale, you know, at the, you know, individual uh, drill hole level. And that actually was very useful. So what we decided was that we would have, you know, because we had that burden of proof that we needed to establish, we had a very consistent, very transparent disclosure process and that was really beneficial because what the uh, the large companies that were evaluating Great Bear were seeing was very consistent with our public disclosures. And, you know, to be honest, that's usually the failing. If people are looking, uh, especially to transact on a property, they have to make sure that there's reconciliation between what the company sees, what the public market sees, and make sure those are basically aligned. If you do that right from the start and you're very consistent with it, you're going to have a better chance, in my view, of having a transactional type event like Great Bear experienced. Can you just go into a little bit more detail about how the LP zone in particular subverts the typical Red Lake model, You know, which is, as, as you alluded to, narrow vein, high grade gold that has issues with continuity? Yeah, I mean, this is effectively a function of the depth, the pressure temperature conditions when these deposits formed, and the host rocks. Like a lot of the host rocks in the Red Lake area are in or beside ultramafic rocks. And ultramafic rocks, although they're spatially correlated with the gold zones in many cases, 
are rheologically or mechanically, they deform a bit like toothpaste under pressure. So they're weak, uh, incompetent, and uh, deform a lot. And that means that if you're trying to develop a gold uh, vein type system in these areas, you can get a lot of discontinuity, you know, as uh, stress is partitioned through the rocks and the gold bearing fluids drop out the gold. It, it happens within veins that are easily uh, deformed. So what we uh, found on our project was that the felsic uh, volcanic, volcanoclastic package uh, that's on the east part of the property, it's basically behaves rheologically differently uh, from the ultramafics. It tends to be a bit more competent, although it is very highly deformed, very highly sheared uh, on the property that we see. The difference was the way the shearing affected the rocks, it tended to homogenize the gold. And that meant that instead of having uh, dissected veins, it probably had something like a very vein-focused uh, irregular vein system in it initially, but then was subjected to a great deal of shear. And that shearing ended up creating planar sheet-like gold deposits. And those were very continuous. We would uh, end up hitting these things for you know hundreds of meters uh, laterally and at depth. And that was completely new. And that's simply a function of the formation conditions for these gold systems. And the fact that it is a different, it's not the mafic and ultramafic volcanic uh, package that hosts most of these deposits. It's the felsic volcanics and they behave differently under mineralization and stress. Sorry, that's a long winded technical type <laughs> answer, but that's a, I think an accurate description of what we saw. <laughs> Sorry, Alicia. <laughs> and, and is there, I'm sure a lot of our viewers will appreciate <laughs> the technical answer, but is there any indication that there are more LP faults? Yeah, effectively uh, there could be in that sense, because the belt of rocks that we were focused on uh, extends to the east of where we were. But there are some very uh, interesting specific conditions to the Dixie project. And that's really the contrast between the types of rocks that we see there. And there is a regional fold culmination. Uh, there's a big D2 fold in that area, which is uh, really a focus for some of that mineralization. So it is possible that those rocks, if they're deformed and have the same sort of transcrustal uh, suture zones that we saw at Dixie or the Great Bear project, that there could be additional mineralization within the felsic package that sort of sits uh, south of town there. So you sold the project to Ken Ross before an, an initial resource. I believe Ken Ross is coming out with the first resource uh, at the end of this year. I know you get asked a lot what you think the resource is going to be or you don't have to answer that question, but you can if you want. But I'm, I'm also interested in whether you're disappointed that you're not going to be there for the big reveal, that you're not the owner. I think it's an interesting question. Um, no, I can't give you a resource number. First of all, I don't know uh, what Ken Ross has come up with uh, as they've done another year's worth of work effectively on the back of what we had. But I would say like you're going to end up in a situation with the, the Great Bear Project now that is gonna be like some of these other big deposits. And this is my personal view um, as a geologist, but also really like with the experience on the project. I don't think you will know how much gold is in the ground there, even in the course of the rest of my lifetime. You know, I'm 44 years old right now. I'm very optimistic, you know, when this thing gets into production that it'll have a multi-decadal life and there'll be exploration going on that property for many, many years. So no matter what Kinross comes up with, it's only going to be a representation of the near surface portion of that mineralized system. Say if you'd 
taken the Hemlo deposit, for instance, you know, which is like a 20 million ounce kind of producer. You know, if you had taken the Hemlo deposit and you had defined resources on it sort of three years after its discovery, you would not have anywhere near the full picture of mineralization in the ground. And that's what I think you're going to see at the Great Pair Project is a system that will just constantly uh, grow and grow as uh, exploration, then mining, and then more concurrent exploration is in place. So I'm not disappointed to not be involved in the initial disclosure because, you know, with a system that size, it's not practically possible to define all the gold ahead of time. Uh, Well, what a legacy for you. That's pretty amazing. If you go back to the beginning of your career, I'm just trying to get a little bit more insight into your, your motivations and what drives you. What brought you into mineral exploration in the first place and into studying structural geology? Well, it's an interesting uh, reflection. So to personally reflect, in my case, I love strategy. I love puzzles, these kind of things. Like quite frankly, you know, there's certain strategy-based video games I can't keep in my house. Otherwise, I would have completely failed as an individual on a professional basis because things like chess or risk or other things like this are really interesting to me. And geology, especially exploration geology, is one of these fields where if you can think creatively, think outside the box, I mean, Mother Nature has provided you these enormous puzzles that you can unravel. You always have incomplete information. You're always using your science training and your intuition to try to figure out what may lie out of view in the ground. Uh, so that's very interesting. And then specifically, with when you get into the, the, the weird combination of geology and the mineral exploration business is really that science element and the puzzle solving, and then these incredibly complex variables of the market, right? So mm-hmm. how are you going to tell a story how are you going to raise the money that keeps people interested and compelled to keep investing with your company instead of somebody else? And you're mixing together those factors with the puzzle solving aspect of figuring out what's in the ground before you actually know and then testing it. I mean, there aren't very many careers like this on the planet. So if you have that really scientific curiosity and you love that sort of tactical and puzzle solving element that you get with uh, that mineral exploration career, there really is nothing else like it. And that's what drew me into it. It was just a unique combination that let me work with great people. I mean, some of the people I've worked with have just been absolutely incredible. Like uh, Bob Singh uh, has been an excellent partner, but the people at Romania Exploration, Terry Bursey, you know, Ian Russell, Crystal McCullough, uh, Rick Greenwood. These guys were absolutely, uh, you know, I learned from them every time I spoke to them. And then we sort of went through this multi-year process of unraveling this system together. And concurrently, we're working in the markets to make sure that we always had the project moving forward. It's just, where else can you do that? Where else could somebody have a career that brings all these diverse elements together and lets you create all this value almost out of thin air? And, you know, the privilege that I've had to work with You know, some of the First Nations communities in the Red Lake area, at Wabaskang, at Laxul, I mean, these guys have been incredible partners, and I know that they're going to have huge benefits from this project over time. And and I've got to learn about, you know, their culture and their history from them as well. And, you know, where can you put all this together? I, I feel so privileged, you know, basically to have had these kind of experiences. And I know that's the kind of thing, um, you know, other careers just can't provide. So I have to ask you this, 
given what you just said, what's next for you? Boy, I do get asked that one a great deal. Well, I'm pretty discriminating. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there have been a lot of opportunities that have come in. Some of them are very compelling. Some of them are not compelling at all. You know, anything that I do next would have to uh, involve the same sort of complex relationship between good science and uh, good market opportunity. Uh, so uh, there are some projects and some uh, people that I'm considering working with. And, you know, in my case, uh, people are incredibly important because the right people will generate the right opportunities over time. And, uh, you know, that's the kind of thing I've been looking at actually for the last several months, although have, there have been some interesting ideas that have floated in quite recently. So I guess people would just have to stay tuned. I'm quite young. Uh, I can't just sit around doing nothing or pontificating uh, for the rest of my life. So uh, I am quite looking forward to getting back in gear here. And I imagine uh, 2023 will be a pretty interesting time. Well, we will definitely uh, stay tuned for that. I guess you won't be bringing a chess uh, board or anything like that into your house in the meantime, so you don't get distracted. So given your huge success, you get asked uh, for advice from other companies, other people in the business. What kind of advice do you give other junior companies who want to have the same sort of success that you have? There's a number of things I've said, and I, I get calls from uh, junior mining CEOs frequently, you know, and this is the kind of thing that you have to stick with your guns. It's very difficult. You know, if you have a story you really believe in, you have to be able to stick with your guns on the one hand. And basically, uh, like in the case of my family, you go through many years where you may actually be paying more into the company than you ever take out of it. So, you know, in my case, there was, uh, I think around the time Great Bear really got traction going in about 2016. I think I had about $300,000 worth of personal debt on my line of credit. And that was related to uh, keeping the company going and other, other related items. So it's very difficult at times to live through the slumps in the industry. Those are great times to pick up projects. You know, if you think about the the, uh, the Dixie acquisition, now the Great Bear project, uh, it was about a $200,000 total acquisition that ended up with a $2 billion uh, total valuation only, you know, seven years later. So this is the kind of thing that can happen in a bad market. So stick with it in the bad market, look for those opportunities. And then conversely, one of the problems that geologists sometimes have in the industry is that we fall in love with projects. So you have to be sure when you're working on a project that it could be developed ultimately into a mine. And that means that you may have found a great, very interesting uh, scientific uh, puzzle that you've solved and you've found mineralization. We all know there's a big difference between mineralization and ore bodies. I would just keep that in mind at the whole time. So there's been excellent projects that I've uh, had over the years that ultimately I've had to let go simply because I felt that they weren't the right opportunity in the context of the market. You know, we couldn't make shareholders uh, do well in a reasonable time frame or with a reasonably high rate of success. So I would highly advise that anybody in the junior sector, you know, looks at that as well. So stick with your guns on the one side, but don't fall in love with your project on the other and make sure that the opportunity aligns with the market and what your shareholders are expecting. It's a fine balancing act. Yep. So you really put a focus on communicating with retail investors and drawing retail investors into the company. That's a smaller pool of investors than it was, I don't know, 20 years ago for various reasons. So why was it so important for you to focus on them? The retail investor is often neglected uh, in the sense that, uh, you know, an individual guy is not gonna carve you a check for $20 million, right? 
But collectively, if you're good at communication and outreach, you're available on your phone, you can make sure that you uh, bring in investors. I, I hate to say this, but it's almost like a job interview. You know, when you're talking to somebody who's interested in becoming a shareholder of your company, a lot of the time money is hard to find and you'll kind of take it from whoever you can get it from. But if you have the ability, I know it's more painful, but if you can be more discriminating on who becomes a shareholder, you can have a very loyal shareholder base that follows your story with a great deal of interest. And, you know, within the Great Bear context, there is, uh, I'm aware of about, it's about half a dozen people that had like million share positions on the retail side. So these are individuals that made, uh, you know, upwards of close to $30 million off their great bear investment. And, you know, that was a lot of conversations. Uh, these are all guys that I know well now, we're all friends and they knew the risks getting involved. We'd always try to communicate that very clearly, but, you know, we put a lot of time and, and, you know, as the CEO of a company, it's going to drive your spouse bananas because you'll be talking on the phone when you're walking the dog on Saturday morning, Sunday morning. Uh, it'll be like Saturday night dinner and you're going to get a phone call and you're going to have to have those conversations. So it may not be the best work life balance, especially going into a heavy retail owned shareholder base, but it's going to reward a lot of families, a lot of individuals. We've had people with their great bear winnings established charities we've had people put their kids through university we've had people just have absolutely life-changing outcomes uh, from these you know including our first nations partners i mean these are going to be big projects that are going to have very positive impacts on those communities too and they're not big communities you know these are hundreds of people a couple of thousand people and this means that the benefits are pretty significant on an individual basis or they certainly can be so anyway it's time consuming but the retail guys, if you're a market person and think about it from this perspective, retail sets the price in the market a lot of the time. You know, you end up with, uh, you know, institutions are a bit more passive. I mean, if they're going to buy, they're going to buy. If they're going to sell, they're going to sell. But it's the retail guy who's following your story and engaged in it who will pick up a bit of stock here and there and keep that price set in the market. So don't neglect it. I understand that it's uh, more work. And, uh, you know, it can be volatile, but at the same time, those relationships are going to build dividends over time. And there's no way to shortcut that kind of process. How can junior companies communicate better with retail shareholders? Um, I'm thinking, you know, obviously every young person that I come across is invested in crypto, but they don't know anything about mining or exploration, right? Yeah. Yeah, I would say that the, this this really is a responsibility for our industry that begins in the home. There's kind of two answers to your question. The first is how do you generally get people interested in mining? And that's usually telling your kids at home, they're not going to hear it in school, of where things come from. Where'd your computer come from? Where'd your iPhone come from? Where'd the car come from? You know, where do the wires in the house come from? What happens if we don't have that stuff? You know, do you think that maybe we should produce that here or should we buy it all overseas? Is that safer for our country in the future? So these are conversations that we have in the Taylor household all the time. Uh, which often made some uh, really interesting conversations in the classroom later on for my kids. The other one on the communication side is really, you have to get, uh, again, fully invested in that communication process. So Bob Singh and myself with Great Bear, we did a lot of kind of interactive webinars and these were quite useful. So Rita Bennett, uh, she was involved as our basically VP communications through that process. And we'd organize these webinars and people would, uh, you know, they kind of laughingly call me Bob Ross 
you know, because uh, I would be drawing, you know, on these 3D diagrams showing what we thought about mineralization and context and size and all this stuff. And, and that was super useful because like you, you have so much information in the market. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of mining and mineral exploration companies. It is physically impossible to keep track of all of them. So if you're trying to glean investor interest, you know, try to make the message clear, try to illustrate it with a lot of pictures, try to show it as an organic growth process. You know, it's a bit like writing a book. I mean, uh, writing is something I've always really enjoyed and people may or may not know that I was the author of every news release that came out of Great Bear. You know, so this is often uh, companies will hire an IR person to write the news releases or it's written by strictly technical staff. But I would say myself and, and Bob Singh, uh, you know, we would collaborate like closely on these things. And ultimately, the final narrative was me. I took that responsibility on because I enjoy it. And when you are successful in this space, it's a lot like writing a novel because you start with, uh, you know, the initial plot, the characters that are involved. Of course, one of those characters is your project, right? And what it's doing. And then over time, you're building up to hopefully a crescendo, which is either the sale of the company, which was the great bear case, or it's going to be you know, the first pour when you get the gold or you get into commercial production. So you're building a narrative. It has to show consistency. You have to keep people interested. So those are the two things. You know, if you really want to bring in investors into this space over time, focus on the one hand of making sure that the younger generation understands the importance of mining, the opportunities for, you know, the, the countries that have mining projects and the professionals and the other support people that work within these industries. And on the other hand, be very good at your communication strategy, make sure it's engaging and make sure you keep with the plot. When you lose the plot with these stories, uh, with these companies as they grow, you're going to lose your investor base as well. That's very interesting about trying to build this plot over time because I would say most juniors have the opposite approach where it's just about it's like short-term excitement. Uh, this is like a really great hole that we've got versus you were very deliberate about, you know, not trying to excite people too much before you understood the plot, I guess. Yeah, that's right. We, we had to know where the story was going. And part of that is working with good people. It was very tempting with our story. And, you know, even I'm tempted by these things. It's like uh, being Luke Skywalker and getting seduced by the dark side of the force, right? So you're drilling great looking gold intercepts. It's hard to raise money. It's hard to get people interested. One of the traps that companies fall into is exactly what you just said, Alicia. They'll put out pictures of the drill core. They'll show all the gold in it and they'll tell you to wait for assays. Well, you can do that again and again, but basically it's like getting an audience that's just looking for an adrenaline hit or a drug hit or something like this. You know, that's not the best way to build the company over time. The best way to do it is basically to build that narrative that I was talking with. And, you know, I always had Bob Singh sitting there on my right shoulder, you know, as that sort of angel, don't do it, Chris, don't put out <laughs> pictures of the gold before we get the assays. And he was very consistent with that. And uh, it helps to, like I said, working with good people keeps you on the straight and narrow. I'm curious about the uh, 2% uh, NSR royalty that, that we talked about at the very beginning created early on, and then you spun it out into a public company in January, 2020. Can you tell me why you did that and what the reaction was at the time? Well, thanks for asking that. It was a very interesting reaction when we did that. So we had some ideas that came up from, um, you know, uh, it was John Robbins. I know we had some conversations there. He was even talking about it, um, you know, just with broader groups. I even remember his son, Chase, 
mentioning it. Uh, Doug Ramshaw was another one that uh, was very keen on that idea. So these are guys that were keen and, uh, you know, originating these sort of ideas for the company. And I remember I was a bit skeptical, I'll be honest with you, uh, because I was the guy in charge of raising all the money and keeping the plot with the company at, at, at the whole time. So when this was floated as a proposal through the board and we all sat down and discussed it, you know, initially I had to really do some soul searching and ultimately what I ended up coming to terms with uh, internally. And then we went with this process was that it was useful for us to do something unusual. It's an unusual process to add a royalty to a project and spin it out to shareholders period. You don't see it a lot. You might see it more in the future, but the bottom line was because of that skepticism that you had mentioned early on with people that were not taking the project seriously or did not believe we could have found what we found. This was a mechanism for us. And in my mind, this was the important part. This is that sort of strategic or tactical thinking was I could go into a bank and they would tell me that I was an idiot or that we had crippled the project or that it would never sell now. Surely this was just a bluff because who would ever do this? And that would force their analysts and the other bankers and their community to look through our data uh, with a fine tooth comb more or less and evaluate were we seeing what we said we were seeing and the net result of all that when we announced we were going to spin out the royalty was people began to believe the story and we began to get more momentum in the market so you know ultimately we had an early decision to make with the project where we were either going to buy out the complete ownership interest and buy out the nsrs or have newmont in this case keep 33 percent interest and maybe keep the NSR. There was an existing 2% NSR with the underlying vendor. You know, we had some uh, soul searching discussions back in 2016 about this, 2015 actually, and we ended up buying both of that. We bought 100% interest. So we got Newmont out of the way before we started drilling, before we knew anything new about the project. And we also cleaned up that royalty. So a 2% royalty, it's about standard. I mean, if any big company, big mining company out there, they're kind of, they'll have a, a like a spreadsheet when they evaluate uh, any sort of opportunity. And in the NSR box, they're probably already going to have a 2% NSR sitting on that. Because like I mentioned, uh, mining projects are a bit like hockey players, baseball players. They're known quantities. Most of the big ones or most of the good ones have been worked on for years. There's not a lot of new things that come around under the sun. So most of those projects, because of different you know, ownership histories over time, have an NSR. So the 2% NSR we put in wasn't really burdensome for the project. Uh, the big companies were assuming there was already an NSR on there. And it was really that mechanism to make the market wake up and take us seriously. So, and you know what? It uh, worked. And at the end, it got us our $2 billion valuation because it was a $200 million, uh, you know, net value to our shareholder base. Chris, I must say you're part of the lineage in the mining industry of really strong leaders that share their success and in a really forthright way, try to pass on the knowledge. You've really done that here today. Alicia, your questions were excellent to help bring that out. And this was a great knowledge transfer. So a huge congratulations to you, Chris. We watch with eager anticipation for what your next endeavor is. As you mentioned, you have the right to be picky now. So let's see which one you pick. Thanks, Anthony. Thanks very much, Alicia. I really enjoyed that. I may not be a miner by trade, but I still learned a ton from that interview. I thought it was a very inspiring 
fireside chat. So well done to both Alicia and Chris. Thank you once again for joining us on the Northern Miner Podcast. If you want to help out the show, leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends. And until next week, take care.